0: Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. Yeah, and I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. A lot going on, Rick. We had our ABC News Town Hall in Philadelphia. You and I were both there, witness to history. Some interesting moments we want to pull out of that. I also uh, want to rewind a little bit uh, to to a moment that I had uh, in the in the White House briefing room with the President and. Uh, It it got a lot of attention. The president uh, uh, didn't like my question, um, but I really – well, let me play it, and I want to play the the kind of extended cut of this because it was a a question that was followed up, that was followed up, um, and much of the coverage has just been on the first question. I think the follow-ups are actually – Uh, very important as well. So we'll play this and and, and talk about it on the other side. Why did you lie to the American people and why should we trust what you have to say now? Such a
1: terrible question and the phraseology. I didn't lie. What I said is we have to be calm, we can't be panicked. And your question, the way you phrase that is such a disgrace. It's a disgrace to ABC television network. It's a disgrace to your employer. And that's the answer. Are you ready? Because are you I things? I love. I mean, you, you, you course I of course I didn't. Of course them. I didn't. No no no
0: no. the flu, and then you went out and told the American public that this was just like the flu. Let me tell you, me something. Mean, you. We've had, had flu years. years. You told everybody else something else.
1: No. And five times, right? Five times. Do you ever hear the expression five times? We've had flu years where we lost a hundred thousand people. The flu is a very serious problem for this country, also. So, but but Bob, just so you this is worse than the most,
0: strenu- deadlier than the most strenuous flu. Okay. And then you went out and said it's just like the flu.
1: What I went out and said is very simple. That. Listen, what I went out and said is very simple. I want to show a level of confidence, and I want to show strength as a leader, and I want to show that our country is going to be fine, one way or the other.
0: So you won't downplay you it again? You won't downplay it again? Because you said you
1: downplayed it, that's what you told me. All I'm doing is, no, I don't want to jump up and down and start screaming death, death, because that's not what it's about. We have to lead a country.
0: As Rick, and, and you know, we've talked about this on, on this podcast, uh, I think probably for close to five years now since the president first, what, since he was a candidate. Um, I, I, I don't tend to use the word lie. Um, it implies intent. It implies that you know what the, what was you know what what the person actually knows, what the motivations are, but the Woodward thing made it crystal clear that the president knew the truth and said something differently, and in fact he had a reason uh, for for saying it differently. Now this actually segues very nicely into the town hall meeting because that question, the question of misleading the American public uh, about the pandemic, was something that was talked about. Brought up by by several of our uh, voters, Pennsylvania voters,
2: in the town hall. Well, John, talk about what went into your thinking on, on that, because like like you said, there's a threshold. I know a lot of reporters get pressured on this all the time. Call out the president's lies. Call out the lies. I have hesitated as a reporter to call, to use the L word. You phrased it in a particular way though that I thought I thought was interesting, and and it was a moment. We had the tape it's no longer a question of if the president misled, uh, and I think you framed it forward to, to why, but w- was there something important in the phraseology to you in this moment?
0: To, to me, there was, because this was not the president simply getting a fact wrong or exaggerating. This was the president, in as we knew from the Woodward tape, who fully knew a truth that he was not sharing with the American people and said something else and actually seemed to have a strategic intent behind it, talking about how he wants to downplay so he doesn't create a panic. So there were there were several elements here. And I thought that, I, you know, I think that, as you know, I, in reporting on this president, I think that one of the biggest challenges facing a reporter, any reporter, is not to appear like you are part of the resistance or the, the opposition party, as he likes to say. And when you go in there and you use loaded terms like a lie, um, you immediately turn off a third to a half of the country who thinks you are just simply out to get him uh, and attacking him viciously and personally. And I, I... Felt that this was a case where that is true. I I I believe we must avoid that. I don't want to appear like the opposition. I don't want to turn off half the country with a with with the way I ask a question or the way I report a story. But there is something that is even a higher priority in in reporting on this White House or any White House or reporting on any story of seriousness and significance, and that is that your your ultimate commitment, your highest. Loyalty is to the truth and to establishing the truth in as clear a way as you possibly can, and to pursue that truth for your readers or your viewers. Our loyalty is to our readers and to our viewers who are counting on us as a source of information that they believe is reliable and crystal clear. And don't hide behind, um, you know, unclear language that, that hides what's really going on. You know, Rick, I, I think that one of the greatest essays ever written in the English language uh, is The Politics of the English Language uh, by George Orwell. And Orwell talks about how a lack of clarity is more than just bad writing. Uh, it can actually hide truths. And, um, and 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 can be used to deceive people uh, by by doing that. So that's why I I went in there and I wanted to be as absolutely crystal clear as I knew how to be. And there were two parts of the question, you know, why did you lie to the American people? I think it was established that he had, and then why should we, and not not me as a reporter who cares, but 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 we all of us now trust what you have to say, um, and. You know, it was. I I I knew there was blowback. I actually thought there was a possibility he might kind of walk out on me or ignore me. I I, you know I didn't know what. um But I I felt that the risk of being in opposition and appearing as as a as a member of the resistance is one thing. But the but the greater risk would have been um not understanding the clarity of the moment and what we learned about the way the president has communicated about this pandemic.
2: And John, I think this president, I've said it before, but for as dishonest as he is, you get flashes of honesty. And I think in in part of his response to to the Woodward revelations, there has been an honesty to say, as he told you, I didn't want to panic. I didn't want to jump up and down. And and that's one reason I thought the questions at the town hall on on Tuesday night were interesting. Listen to how it played out. Our, Our friend and colleague, George Stephanopoulos, moderating those questions Uh, from uncommitted voters in Pennsylvania last night.
1: Well, I didn't downplay it. I actually, in many ways, I upplayed it in terms of action. My action was very strong. Yeah, because what I did was uh, with China, I put a ban on. With Europe, I put a ban on. And we would have lost thousands of more people had I not put the ban on. So that was called action, not with the mouth, but in actual fact. We did a very, very good job when we put that ban on. Whether you call it talent or luck, it was very important. So we saved a lot of lives when we did that.
2: So the, it, it's a full 180 from where he started, from telling Bob Woodward that he downplayed now to saying that he upplayed. He upplayed. It, yeah. upplayed. It, what, what does this tell you about the president's mindset on COVID 19 as he gets to these, for these last 50 some odd days? of the election. He, it, it seems to me like he is is just itching to declare total victory and move on at this point.
0: I think there's no question about that. I also think, you know, there was another moment in the town hall where uh, he was asked if there was anything, anything he thought he did wrong. If there's anything he'd do differently. And of course he is constitutionally unable, I don't mean the U.S. constitution, I mean his constitution Uh, unable to admit mistake uh, and acknowledge regret. So he thinks he did everything right. But if it weren't for that, uh, I think that if you really put the truth serum in him, that he probably, his regret is that he didn't do less. (laughs) I think that, I think he, I think he, He's been convinced by people that the shutdown um, was, uh, was, was an overreaction. We know, I know, I just talk to the people uh, who advise him, who, who, who believe that, that, that the world overreacted to this. I mean, it's a, it's a hard case to make. I won't try to make it here, but, but, but there, there were people in real time who thought the actions by uh, you know, the various uh, local governments uh, to shut things down were, were overreactions. Uh, with the possible exception of New York, because the extreme circumstances there. Um, but I, I it, there was an, another moment in the town hall where he was uh, pressed about this idea of of truthfulness, um, and you know, he said that you know, what was he supposed to do if he had said the whole real thing? He would have created. What he's supposed to do? And the answer was really well, what you know, you could you could have shown leadership. And then it was interesting. Trump brought up the example of Winston Churchill, who, of course, led Great Britain uh, through the Blitz and uh, you know, was taking over the reins in Great Britain as uh, the Nazis have 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 occupied France and are preparing to bombard. Uh, London, night after night, uh, uh, air raid, uh, the Nazi air raids of uh, of London, and and Trump brings this up, but in a, well, let me just let me just play it.
1: When Churchill was on the top of a building, and he said, "Everything's going to be good. Everything's going to be become," and you have the Nazis dropping bombs all over London. He was very brave because he was at the top of a building. It was very well known that he was standing on buildings and they were bombing. And he says everyone's going to be safe. I don't think that's being necessarily honest. And yet I think it's being a great leader. So he, he didn't think that Churchill was being... No, no, just
0: First of all, let's untangle the history for a second. I, I think that you and I have both read a fair amount of British history, um, uh, certainly of, 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 the, of, of that period. I... I <laughs> I don't know any reference to Churchill being on the top of a building telling everybody uh, that everything is going to be everything's going to be good. <laughs> I don't recall that. I do recall.
2: No, no, he did. He did. He did run to the top of buildings during during blitzes. I don't think his security people liked it, but it, it wasn't like it was live television. Yeah, but he, he,
0: but, but but his I mean, message he, 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 wasn't <laughs> his message wasn't uh, everything's going to be good.
2: I mean, no, no, he liked. I think he liked the experience. He liked to be in the middle of it and feel it and smell it, and like, like his fellow citizens were. In,
0: in fact, so I, I I went through and I I picked out a speech, not from the top of a building, but his uh, uh his his first speech as prime minister to the House of Commons, and 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 I just I I wanted to make sure that I had my, my recollections were correct. I wasn't there, but as you know, as we, as, you know we we. We, we we read about these things. So uh, Trevor Hastings dug into our archives and actually pulled out a, a clip from Winston Churchill's first speech as Prime Minister, Britain, you know, uh, uh, you know, about to face uh, uh, an
3: unrelenting Nazi assault. Take a listen. I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood. Toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say, it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny, never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. So, and God, I just love hearing I love hearing
0: that voice. I love <laughs> hearing those great. words. <laughs> and by the way, one 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 of the great experiences is to go uh to the Churchill War Rooms, the Churchill Museum beneath uh, Whitehall, uh where he had his bunker. And um and and they they've got a you know an exhibit down there where you can listen to one of his radio addresses that he delivered from from that bunker with a very similar message. And the message was one of confidence that that the Allies were going to ultimately prevail over the Nazis, because there was simply no other choice. As he said, without victory, there is no survival. Victory, however long and hard the road may be. Uh, but that's very different from the way the president uh, described Churchill as saying, everything's gonna be good, everything's gonna be, you know, be calm. Um, that was not Churchill's message. Yes, there is the keep calm and carry on. The British people endured a lot and and dealt with it. But let but let me just play again. I think it's important. One little segment of that clip we just played
3: from Winston Churchill. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering.
0: Now that is the message that we never heard from Donald Trump through the greatest crisis facing our country, certainly of our lifetimes. Um, We never heard him say, you know, buck up. This is going to be brutal. This is going to be tough. This is going to be, you know, we heard him say, it's going to disappear. It's like a miracle. One day it's just going to disappear. We heard him talk night after night about what a tremendous and great job his administration had done. Uh, But I, again, I bring this all up. Because it was Donald Trump in the town hall meeting who invoked Winston Churchill and suggested that his misleading of the line to the American public about the extent of the danger was somehow like Winston Churchill. I I think in that brief review of of just a single Churchill speech, um, I think it's... Quite obvious that that is is not a good comparison,
2: and and you don't even have to go far back in the archives. And the president also said in that same town hall that a vaccine is around the corner, that we're we're rounding the corner, uh, and that uh, and he he reiterated. And George pressed him a couple times on this, uh, but that it would disappear. It will disappear. Um, he talked about the what he called the herd mentality. I think he meant herd immunity, but herd mentality was his word uh, as a way to defeat it. And and it is. It's been a recurring theme of the six months of the response that we're about to beat this thing. That it that, that the crisis is overblown, uh, and that uh, and that his leadership is helping that uh, that that become a reality. And I wonder because you know bombs have been falling in a metaphorical sense around America. Almost two hundred thousand dead now, and it is this is not fake this is not abstract this is a real crisis that continues and continues to impact people's lives the president needs this to be over he needs to create the perception that it's over and it would appear now that he's in too deep on uh, on this line of argument to to backtrack in any way shape or form he's going to go with this to the polls
0: uh, no doubt. And I, and I think, look, and, and I think on balance, there were some aspects of the town hall that actually I, I thought were, were good for the president. He interacted with the real voters. He listened to them. He didn't snap at them the way he, you know, snaps at the reporters when they ask similar questions. He engaged. He seemed uh, actually empathetic um, on on the when when talking about the, the death toll um, uh, from coronavirus. Uh, you know, but but Uh, and and I think it would actually do him, I I, I think that he would get some credit, although maybe now everything is too late, but I think that, you know, some acknowledgement of the rough road ahead of, uh, of of the challenges that may remain, but he's, again, he can't, he just, he does, you know, he's, he's used to selling buildings, (laughs) he's used to selling, we got the greatest, the best, it's going to be so awesome. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, as, as we've discussed, a, a, a virus doesn't respond to that. We have an, Excellent second half of the show, I've got to say. Something I've been looking forward to. We are going to shine a spotlight on what I will argue is perhaps, perhaps, the most interesting Senate race of 2020. All right, welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. Rick, we're going to focus on what I am going to argue might actually be the most interesting Senate race of this, uh, of this cycle. South Carolina, where you have... Lindsey Graham, the the guy that uh, had been perhaps Donald Trump's harshest Republican critic, transformed into his best Republican friend, or at least one of them, uh, running in a state that has been dominated by Republicans for more than a decade. No no Democrat has won down there in more than than a decade in a statewide race. And uh, a a, a race that he won six years ago by more than 16 points. But the guy that we're going to talk to right now is the Democratic candidate uh, for Senate down there the former chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party, Jamie Harrison? Jamie, thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me. And what I and I've
0: been wanting to talk to you for a while. I, I saw that in the in the in the most recent fundraising quarter, you actually raised more money than Lindsey Graham. In fact, you were one of the top camp, Senate campaigns in the country, raising more than fourteen million dollars. And we had a poll in August, a Quinnipiac poll that had you tied with Lindsey Graham. I mean, nobody thought this was going to be a competitive race. So two-part question. Do you think you can really beat him? And what is what is your core message, uh, uh,
4: your core campaign message, in short, against Lindsey Graham? Well, listen, I thought I could win this race. That's why I got in it. I wouldn't have got in <laughs> <laughs> without thinking well, I had a pathway to win. Um, and and that's, that's the thing. Listen, uh, for somebody like me, I was born into long odds, right? My mom was a teenager when she had me. I was raised by grandparents. We had a fourth grade and eighth grade education. But I ended up going to Yale and Georgetown Law, working on Capitol Hill and becoming the first black chair of the state party. So I know what a David versus Goliath story is. My life has been that. And so going into this race, I knew that this Lindsey Graham is very different than the the old Lindsey Graham. I like to say there's a Lindsey Graham 1.0 and then there's Lindsey Graham 2.0. I could not beat Lindsey Graham 1.0. That was that was a John McCain Lindsey Graham. This is a different man. This is a, a totally different person. Uh, this Lindsey Graham is vulnerable. He's vulnerable because he has t- taken his eye off of the needs of the people here in South Carolina. That old Tip O'Neill saying that all politics is local is true. Uh, that, that, you know, you got to focus on uh, home and you got to focus on uh, the hopes, the aspirations and the fears of the people that you represent. And Lindsey has failed to do that. He hadn't had a town hall meeting in person in almost three years, but he's on Fox News every other night with Sean Hannity, right? So people, people pick up on those things. They also see that this guy uh, didn't even stand up for his best friend after the, the president attacked him. Uh, viciously. And so folks here in South Carolina want someone with a backbone, with a spine, someone who's going to stand up for them and their families, regardless of who's in the White House or, or who the, uh, who's in control of Congress. And that's what we are demonstrating on this race each and every day. So our fundraising has been through the roof. It's been amazing. Uh, and we've done it, not with corp- huge corporate packs like Senator, Senator Graham, but at you know, $30 a person because grandmas and grandpas, aunts, uncles, and all are giving us all their little extra cash because they're ready for change here in, in South Carolina. So by all
0: accounts, though, Donald Trump is uh, very popular in South Carolina. I, 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 this Senate race may now be on the list of competitive races that people are watching, but you know, n- nobody's expecting that Joe Biden is going to beat uh, Donald Trump in, in South Carolina. So I'm wondering how Lindsey Graham's um, tightness with Donald Trump is going to play, and I don't know if you caught this. There was a there was a weird moment on. You mentioned Fox News. There was a a strange moment um, after the Woodward uh, uh, you know news broke, where Tucker Carlson blamed Lindsey Graham for being the one that convinced Donald Trump to do the interview with, uh, with Bob Woodward. By the way, I don't think that's actually true, but, but, but this is what Tucker was saying. And then he went on to say this about Lindsey Graham.
2: Keep in mind that Lindsey Graham has opposed, passionately opposed, virtually every major policy initiative that Donald Trump articulated when he first ran, from ending illegal immigration, to pulling back from pointless wars, to maintaining law and order at home. Lindsey Graham was against all of that.
0: How how does that play? I mean, there are a lot there are a lot of Fox viewers in in South Carolina. A lot of people watching Tucker Carlson. How, how do how does an attack like that on Lindsey Graham play? It's very different than your attack on on Lindsey Graham or the way you're criticizing him. But how how, how, do, how does that
4: play? Well, see, this is what you get when you don't have a set of core convictions and values. When you flip flop on every issue, you say one thing in the morning and you say something totally different at night. Uh, that, then you get squeezed from the left, the right, and in the middle, uh, and that's what Lindsey is. Uh, I mean, he's he's gotten political whiplash right now because uh, you know people are hitting him in all these different directions because there is no core there uh, to say this is what I believe, this is what I'm going to fight for, this is what I'm standing up behind. Uh, just even recently, he tried to. Attack me about releasing taxes, right? Uh, And 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 my response to him after uh, a few days, because you know I I just don't have my taxes ready to to uh, give to folks, and they need to be redacted and all. Is okay. I've done it now. Ask uh, President Trump. I mean, yeah, it's it's the hypocrisy of it all, and people are tired of that right now because what they want, the anxiety in their lives is at such an all time high. What they want is uh, 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 they just want some political leaders who are just going to shoot straight with them, who who are just going to say, here's a game plan. This is how we get out of this. Uh, This is what I'm going to fight for. And I'm going to push for you rather than have a a senator who says over my over our dead bodies, will we allow an extension of the unemployment benefit? But, hey, you know, I'm fighting for you all. Well, no, Senator, you're not. Uh, you're fighting for somebody, but you're not fighting for us. And, and, and I think that's what you're seeing right now. That's why this race is as close as it is. And that's why, ultimately, I'm going to win this race. I mean, we are getting Democrats, Republicans, and Independents that are coming together. And we're, what we're doing is forming the old coalition that Lindsey Graham 1.0 used to have. That is becoming the new Jamie Harrison coalition that's going to lead us to victory on November 3rd.
2: Jamie Harrison, just to clarify the, the point on taxes, because I saw that you, you responded to the tweet. You, you have released the taxes. Are they publicly available right now? Are they accessible online?
4: No, uh, no. So uh, what Lindsay did was he gave it to
2: a local newspaper, and and we did the same thing.
4: Um, so and they're
2: they're accessible now to to local media in South Carolina. Yeah,
4: yeah. And so uh, and you know and um, they're writing up report or or something on it. I mean, it's it's a. It's a desperate ploy by somebody who understands that they, he's in the, the fight for his life. Um, and I mean, think about this. This guy's been in Washington, D.C. for 25 years. Um, and, and just now he's thinking about, well, I need to release my taxes. I mean, he, he's, uh, he's flailing. Uh, he's not talking. Every ad that he runs here in South Carolina is a negative ad instead of talking about his record. And it's, uh, I almost feel a little sad for him. Uh, not Not enough that I'm gonna uh, relent and, and not keep pushing, but uh, because in the end of the day, the people in South Carolina need somebody that's going to be a workhorse for them. Uh, and we, we see Lindsay horse uh, Lindsey Graham, who's been more of a show horse than anything.
2: I want to ask about about COVID-19 and the response. We heard from the President at our ABC town hall last night uh, his expectation that a vaccine is going to be available in the coming weeks, kind of leaving open the prospect that it that could be available shortly before election day. Would you, as, as a citizen uh, and as a, as a Democrat who, who's been critical of the president is handling of COVID-19, would you be comfortable with taking a vaccine if the president says, "Here it is, you know, week before the election?
4: If, doc, if Dr. Fauci said, here it is, and I believe it, and I, be, I think it's safe for folks to take, yes, I, I will definitely do that. Um, but the only person that I have the confidence in right now in terms of, of of vaccine who I believe is above the political fray that where the American people have confidence in, in him and, and that he's doing the right thing and doing it for the right reasons is Dr. Fauci. And so So the president's uh,
2: word, the president's word wouldn't be enough for you necessarily. It it has to be. I, I I need the Dr.
4: Fauci stamp of approval. You know that little blue, blue stamp. Boop. (laughs) Uh, That this is good for the American people because I believe he has the technical and the science background. Uh, He's, you know, respected by Democrats and Republicans alike. And I know that it's not about politics; it's about uh, what is in the best interest of the health of the American people. Uh, And so I I believe in him, and and uh, believe uh, and have confidence in him and what he says.
0: Your victory would, if you want, if you want, and and I think you would acknowledge that you still have an uphill fight against Lindsey Graham.
4: Oh yeah, I mean, listen, it's uh, it's the David versus Goliath race of of this. of this uh, campaign but, cycle, but we know how that ca- contest is. But
0: if you, yeah, that's true. If, if you win, you will make history in, in a very interesting way. Uh, it'll be the first time in all of American history that we have two African American senators from the same state. We got close. Uh, we got close in Mississippi with, with Hiram Revels and Blanche Kelso yep. Bruce, but they, but they were, there were a few years apart, but one in one seat, one in the other seat. Uh, but we've, we've never seen that. I, I, I'm wondering about your, your take on Tim Scott as a senator. Obviously, as a Republican, obviously, you guys disagree on a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, but Tim Scott came forward, and we, we had him on the show not that long ago on the podcast, uh, talking about his uh, police reform bill, which seemed uh, to, to do a, you know, put forth a lot of reforms that, that, that a lot of people have said are really necessary. didn't go as far. As as some thought, uh, there's some argument. Maybe maybe in some ways it went further than what the Democrats are proposing, but the but the Democrats in the Senate wouldn't even go along with 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 getting a, having a full debate on his bill and working with him uh, on crafting a compromise. At least that was that is the way Tim Scott sees it. I think he's got a, I think he's got a pretty strong case in making that. Uh, what, what how would you have handled that? You're you're in you're, you're in the Senate. Uh, you've got your your you know, fellow South Carolina Senator Tim Scott is making a good faith effort to try to do something on this critically important issue. And the other members of your party are basically not doing anything to work with him.
4: Yeah. Well, one, I, I know that is not the case. Uh, you know, I, I talked to Kamala Harris and Cory Booker fairly often. And, uh, and Cory and and Tim are, are friends. And, and listen, I, I, I'm friendly. But his with,
0: bill didn't. His bill didn't get a. I mean, they, they, they couldn't bring it up.
4: They, they well, they well, one one the the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee didn't even have a hearing for it. Uh, at least for something this significant, have a hearing so you can have discussions and you can have amendments and have uh, folks give the opportunity to debate certain things and offer amendments in order to make the bill stronger instead of just taking it straight to uh, straight to the Senate floor. Um, you know, you know. Again, folks, folks can't play political games on these things because lives are are, are at risk. Um, and you know, I applaud Senator Scott for for coming up with some legislation uh, to begin to have the discussion. But uh, again, this is significant enough, particularly for one community—the community that he belongs to, the African American community. That we want to make sure that we are, are addressing it in the best fashion, uh, best way and manner forward. And I think had that bill been was brought up in the Senate Judiciary Committee and you allowed Kamala Harris and Cory Booker to make their amendments and offer and, uh, and so many other folks, uh, I think I think the end result could have been very different. And so that just makes me question whether or not Lindsey Graham and the leadership and on the Republican side, Republican side actually just wanted a talking point or they actually wanted to get some legislation done and address this issue. Uh, this is not something new. This has been a generational uh, issue for African-Americans. Uh, uh, it, it has been an issue generationally for African-Americans. And so, uh, you know, what I would do is... You know, of course I would work with Tim on this, uh, because this is so personal to me. Um, but what we see with Lindsey Graham is that you, he just wants to have, have a discussion in front of the cameras and said he did something and give lip service to it and doesn't really care whether or not you actually get a result out of it. Uh, I do care because it has an impact on my com- the community that I come from. It has an impact on me as a black man. Um, And I can understand why Tim is hurt, that he couldn't get the ball rolling, but I think if we would have gone down some regular order. I think the end result would have been a very different
2: one jamie harrison if you are elected you, uh, almost certainly i think it would be part of a wave that would put you, the democrats in the majority in the senate but it's going to be a narrow majority no matter no matter what kind of wave we see given the given the map the, one of the key questions that i think is going to confront a new democratic majority is the filibuster whether yeah. to maintain the filibuster we saw president obama recently say it's time to get rid of it citing in part the way that it was used in the civil rights movement to to block a lot of very important legislation that that moved the ball forward. There, we've seen uh, Democrats make use of the the filibuster quite frequently uh, in the in recent years with Republican control. Where do you land on that? Do you think the filibuster should or should not exist in the United States Senate?
4: Well, I'm I'm very hesitant to tinker with uh, some of the structures and institutions that have lasted over generations uh, just for short-term political gains. And I, I can understand why so, so many of my fellow candidates and, and some of the folks in the Senate and the Democratic side want to think about that because a lot of progress has been stalled. But at the same time, uh, had we gotten rid of the filibuster in the midst of this pandemic, we would have millions of people in this country right now that would not have health insurance on the, the Affordable Care Act. And so when I think about things, I am particularly thinking about how it impacts the most vulnerable among us. Uh, And I think about the social safety net that this country has for folks that uh, who are living like the way I grew up, right, who rely on some of these social programs for their livelihoods and how they take care of themselves and their families. Uh, And I would hate to see that safety net uh, gutted because of the political swings of, of our political pendulum. Um, because, you know, Republicans take control and they f- say all of a sudden, let's just cut all the SNAP. Let's cut uh, the, the CHIP program or what have you. What, what then happens to those uh, families that rely upon those, uh, those programs? Um, and, and until somebody gives me a good uh, answer to that. Uh, I, I don't know if I could be supportive of, of an effort to, to rip away uh, the, the last protection that the minority has uh, in terms of uh, uh, some of the things that, that we need in this country. That's not to say that the Republicans haven't taken advantage of the filibuster they have. Um, but but I, I do believe that uh, there are a lot of people now that have a health insurance, and if there were no filibuster, uh, they wouldn't have it right now.
0: And, and what you learn is uh, y- your party may be in the majority uh, and then it may not be. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we saw the Democrats you know, um, uh, go first with ending the filibuster on, on judges and, yep. and, and then the Republicans go the, other, the rest of the way. Uh, both sides screamed bloody murder when the other side did it, <laughs> but, uh, but there you have it. Uh, Jamie Harrison, it's uh, very great to talk to you. Uh, look forward to talking to you again. Uh, please, uh, please keep in touch. We'll be following your campaign. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jamie. And that is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics for our entire Powerhouse Politics team. Trevor Hastings, Avery Miller, Rick Klein, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week.